Hello, and welcome to Meditations from Middle Earth. My name is Strider, and I'm a Christian worker here in where I call Middle Earth. We love to meditate on God's Word, and He's given us so many unique and rich experiences here in Middle Earth, and I'd like to share those insights with you here on Meditations from Middle Earth. Today we're going to meditate on Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. But before we get there, I would like us to discuss our uh, discipline today, our spiritual discipline. And that's going to be the discipline of worship. Uh, What is worship? I've used this phrase from Richard Foster in his Celebration of Discipline for many, many years. And several times I've gotten pushback on it. Um, but but you start the de- definition of worship with to worship is to experience reality. And as we think about what does that mean to experience reality, reality is the things that we can uh, touch and taste and see and hear and scientifically examine. And, and this is reality for a lot of us. But when we consider that uh, the Lord is present with us always, which is also a real thing, Uh, although it cannot be scientifically measured, it's still real. And I defend the statement with Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah in chapter 6, he's confronted with the Lord himself and the temple. He goes into the temple and he has this vision or whatever you want to call it, but he sees the Lord. I saw the Lord and his train of his robe filled the whole temple. And then he goes on to describe that the Lord was surrounded with um, these angels, these seraphim, and and they had six wings. And as they flew about the Lord, they worshipped him. And what they said was, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with your glory. And as I think on that, Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with your, his glory. And there's the angels. They're there in his presence. And they're saying that the earth is filled with the glory of God. And uh, a lot of times, for those of us who've grown up in church, grown up singing the classic hymns, this is not unusual language. But if you stop and think about it for a minute, do you feel like that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God? Or do you look around and do you see poverty and destruction? Do you see selfishness and self-centeredness? Do you see oppression and injustice? All of these things don't feel like the glory of God. But the angels see it. They're with him and they see it. And this is a really special gift that they have to see the glory of God. And for you and I to turn and worship God and recognize that his glory is present with us even when we can't see him so clearly, I think is a special, uh, a special grace that's given to us. That, and, it, and it really leads me to that human worship is a response to the d- divine initiative. It's, it's a response to God calling to us. We, didn't, we weren't sitting around a circle and suddenly said, wow, why don't we reach out to God and just tell him how great he is? No, it's, it is he who moved in our lives and called us to himself. 
even if you're just listening to this podcast, I doubt very seriously that you would be listening to a podcast on contemplative prayer if God wasn't calling you to do so. It's just not something that we are normally interested in, just as natural human beings enamored of the things that we can feel and touch and see and hear all around us. Um, no, I think that it's a, it is a divine initiative, a divine um, invitation to us, and worship is our response to that invitation as we see God and and, and who he is and how glorious he is. And we can see him in nature. And we can see him in beautiful interactions between human beings when they love each other and forgive one another and help each other and encourage one another. And we're looking at this, and then we can say, oh, I see the glory of God here. And even in the midst of, of difficulties and horror, we can see God at work. Oh, there's this terrible situation happening. There's men oppressing men. There's uh, women being abused and children being trodden down. And yet in the midst of it all, we see someone who is shining a light. We see someone who is loving and forgiving and helping. And there's compassion and concern and there's love in the midst of all the darkness. And when that candle gets lit, it illumines the God who enabled that candle to be lit. And then we can worship even in our dark, difficult circumstances. And so to worship, to recognize God for who he is and for our spirit to touch his spirit as he reaches down and touches us and shows us a glimpse of himself and it calls us to a physical act of worship. Uh, worship can be physical. It's, you know, the, in the Old, the Old Testament, worshipers were prostrate on the ground. They were standing with their hands in the air. They were uh, singing. They were dancing. They were doing everything except for the classic prayer uh, position of sitting carefully with your head bowed and your hands clasped in front of you with your eyes closed. That's really the only form of worship that's not found in the Bible. And yet, uh, it's a beautiful form of worship just the same because worship is physical and it's the attitude of our heart as God's Spirit touches ours that leads us to recognize Him as beautiful and glorious and divine. And therefore, the object of our worship must be God alone. Jesus, of course, gives this answer, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. And so as we're loving the Lord God, this is an act of worship. And it's the first commandment that Jesus is quoting uh, from the commandments that Moses gave. Uh, by contrast, the essence of idolatry is to entertain thoughts about God that are unworthy of him, according to A.W. Tozer. And as we think about that, this idolatry, where the old classic, of course, idol is sitting there, this stone or wooden or metal statue standing and people bowing down to it and calling that God, uh, as Isaiah says, a God who cannot hear and cannot speak and cannot move, and this is no God at all. And why are we worshiping it? Because we have... Uh, given that object our worship. We have given that object 
of the place of God in our lives. That's idolatry. And it's the same thing, really, I think, even in our 20th cent- 21st century, I almost said 20th century, here we are in the 21st century, and here we are all this time later, and we're still playing around with idolatry. How so? Well, we're still thinking thoughts about God that are less than who he is. When we, when we declare God to not be as merciful as he is, when we declare God to not be as loving as he is, when we declare God not to be forgiving as he is, when we make the statements, he can never forgive me, he can never love me, he can never forgive you, he will never love you. When we make these kinds of statements, then we are lying about God. We are saying things about God that are not true because God is love and he is ultimate power and ultimate authority, ultimate love, ultimate forgiveness, ultimate compassion. He is self-giving. That's how he's creating the universe continually, moment by moment, infusing life into it as he gives of himself to, uh, to his own great cost, right? Because Is the universe giving back to God? Well, we're not. No, we've broken this whole uh, system. We've broken this world with our sin and our shame and our guilt and our rebellion against a holy God. And by refusing to recognize him and give him glory, he's pouring out, giving us gifts of life and beauty every day, and we're repaying that gift with ugliness and sin and injustice, and thoughtlessness, and selfishness. So it's costing God to do this. And so when we see him, we worship him because he's worthy of worship. He's beautiful and he's lovely. And so as we go into worship, we need to prepare our hearts and our minds. Uh, We need to expect that God will be moving. We'll expect that he's as the word is speaking because he's always speaking. We will practice his presence. We'll recognize that he's around us all the time. And then as we worship, worship is most often corporate in the body of Christ. Um, You can worship privately in your own prayer closet. But we list worship as a corporate discipline because we recognize that as God has given gifts to his people, those gifts uh, enmesh with each other so that my weakness is your strength and your weakness is my strength. And together we can thrive in this world. And together our worship of God is complete. Now, as we meet together and worship him, there's lots of human activity, right? There's, there's singing, there's prayers offered, There's listening to the word. There's listening to a message that the speaker believes is a message from God. And we try to hear him and then speak to others and encourage them. And all of these things are human activity. None of them are actually worship until the spirit of God touches our spirit. And then the music becomes uh, a time of, of interacting with God himself. And there's joy and there's peace. Uh, sometimes there is even 
conviction maybe of of sin, but this conviction of sin doesn't lead to shame and hiddenness. It leads to confession and openness and a closer relationship with that which we are worshiping, the Almighty God. And then there's also, uh, as he speaks and his spirit touches our spirit in the word, and we hear from the text of the scriptures, and we know that he's speaking to us, and we hear him in the voice of each other, maybe if there's a preacher or someone teaching, and we can hear not just that person's voice, but we hear the voice of God in the midst of that. And so all of these things lead to the act of worship, this singular act of my spirit being with his spirit and living in awe of his spirit and wonder. It's a beautiful experience, worship is. It's a humbling experience. It's an acknowledgement that he's God and I am not, that he is control in control and I am not. But nevertheless, it's the truth and it's the reality that is. And so we want to be like the angels in Isaiah 6 and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So in worship, we begin to see that. Although, as Paul says, in a mirror uh, darkly, but still, this is what we're trying to accomplish in worship. And by by saying trying to accomplish, we're trying to place ourselves in the position where we're receiving what God is seeking to give us. And now with that, I want to move on to our meditation today in Matthew chapter 3. So we've already talked about John the Baptist and how he has uh, proclaimed that someone will come who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And as he's talking about this person that's coming here in verse 13, in Matthew chapter 3, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now, let's think about this and meditate on it briefly. He comes to John. John is offering the baptism of repentance. He's saying to everyone, stop walking in your evil, selfish ways and come. Come to this water. Be baptized. Go underneath the water and rise up out of the water as a symbol for how God has cleansed your heart, that this repentance leads to a cleansed heart because you have allowed God to wash your sins away. And the water is a symbolic uh, declaration to everyone that I have repented of my sins and I am now clean. And this is the baptism of John. And here's Jesus. Jesus, whom as we understand from scriptures, has lived a perfect life. He has not sinned. The Spirit of God breathed into Mary, his mother, the personhood of Jesus. And 
Therefore, Jesus is fully man, Mary's son, and fully God, the Spirit of God himself. And so, as this person comes to John completely whole and completely pure and completely holy, he says, I'd like to go ahead and be baptized. And John is like, why are you coming to me? That doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm a sinner. I am a person who is wandering on this dark planet apart from God. And here you are, Almighty God, coming to me to say, let you baptize me. I, it's crazy talk. And so Jesus responds very interestingly now. He says, let it be so for now. In other words, what you're saying is true, but just let that go. It's proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. So in what way is this fulfilling righteousness? And I would, I would think on it this way, that just because Jesus didn't have anything to repent from actions that he had done does not mean that he does not have to do actively what is right. John is calling everyone to a special relationship with God. He's saying, prepare for the coming of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus comes to John to prepare for the coming of the kingdom of God, just like everyone else. Now, it's true that he doesn't have anything to repent from, but nevertheless, in order to Had he failed to be baptized like everyone else, then he wouldn't be like everyone else. And God sent him, his spirit, into this world in the person of Jesus precisely and because he was showing us the way. And if he's going to show us the way, he's going to have to do the things that we do only perfectly. And so here his first step cannot possibly be a step of disobedience by saying, yeah, don't need baptism, so I'm not going to do that. And there's disobedience in, out of the gate, and now all of a sudden he does need it, right? <laughs> no, he does not. he's not going to do that. Jesus says later in, in the book of John, John quotes him as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I say this many times because I just can't get over this. He's the way. And he is not going to ask his followers to be baptized if he's not going to be baptized. He will not ask his followers to forgive others if he does not forgive others. He will not ask his followers to go on mission and to love others well if he has not gone on mission and loved others well. No, he's the way. And so we will do it the way he does it, even to the point that he says, The way I am going leads to the cross, and he calls us to take up our crosses and follow him. And here's the first step, and that is baptism. Let it be so for now. Yep, you're right, John. I don't have to be baptized as some kind of forgiveness for sins, but in order to be righteous and to fulfill all righteousness, I do have to walk this path. Because this is the path that my Father has called me to walk on. It's an act of submission. Now, I want to point out, I have heard many people talk about the idea that we submit to God, but He does not submit to us. And I want to return to this concept of idolatry 
out of the discipline of worship. Because what did I say? I said that idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. When we accuse God of not submitting to us, we are not recognizing what he has done, and we are not recognizing who God is. And what idolatry does to us is it just it destroys our soul because we are we are changed into the image of that which we worship. And so if you worship money, you become a greedy, self-centered person. If you worship yourself and your own wisdom, then you become more and more an introspective and self-serving person. All relationships must bow to you. So if we worship an almighty, self-giving God, a God who loves us so much that he created us and gives himself to us daily by sustaining us, then we also in turn become the kind of people who love others and give of ourselves for others. This is submission. Submission is not oppression. And that's a huge misunderstanding and a misuse of that word. Um, sometimes in our uh, context and in, in, in how we use that word, somebody must submit to somebody else, and we force that submission. And we say, no, no, that person has to bow down to me or has to bow down to that other person and submit to them. That's not actually submission. That's subordination. Subordination is a military concept where somebody is subordinate or inferior to another. So you have the general, and then you have his subordinates, people who are not generals. <laughs> and if they're underneath him, then they are not of his rank or his quality and his character, and therefore they must do what he says. They have to obey him because... He is superior to them. And here you have these words superior and subordinate. God does not come to us in this way. He comes to us as almighty God, and yet he submits to us, even to the point of his own son going to the cross for our sins, to demonstrate to us that he loves us and cares for us and wants to draw us into a relationship. He did this for us, not because we're superior to him, but because he loves us. And so submission is an act of agency. God has the power to submit to us. Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down or I take it up. He's free to do either one, and he lays down his life freely. So if I'm to submit to others, it's because I have the power over my own life to say, yes, I will submit to you and love you. People who have their agency taken away from them, when we say, oh, those people are inferior, you, many religions around the world have this concept of, of priest or holy men, all these kind of practices that elevate people above other people. And then these people must be served. This is subordination. This is not biblical submission. And even to the point of husband and wife, 
The wife doesn't submit to the husband out of a subordination attitude. The husband is superior to the wife and therefore she must do it. No. The wife and the husband submit to one another because that's what love calls us to. Because we have agency, we have uh, the power that God has given to us and entrusted to us, and then we take that power and we give it to others. We, if we use that power for ourselves, then we are self-serving and worshiping ourselves. But when we give that power to others, when we serve others, when we submit to others, then we are behaving in a loving way, and it's our choice to do so. Because I am not inferior to anyone else. I am a child of God. He created me, and he didn't create something inferior. He created my wife, and she is not inferior. And therefore, our relationship is based on love, and that calls us to submit one to another. The moment I say she has to submit because that's the law, because she is subordinate to me somehow, now it's no longer based on love. And she doesn't do this out of love. She does it out of duty. And God doesn't want that kind of relationship with his people. If he did, he would come down as the conquering hero with a great sword in hand and force all of us to bow down. He has not done that because that's not who he is. He is a God who loves us and is calling us to love him. And so here's Jesus the very first act of his ministry is not to take out a sword and say, all right, let's go beat up on the Romans and become a great nation. His first act is to be baptized. Whether he has committed any sins or not, he will go under the water and he will come up out of the water as an act of submission to fulfill all righteousness. And then it says that John consented because John understood. John understood who Jesus was and what he'd come to do. And he worshiped by being obedient to Jesus and baptizing him. And Jesus leads all of us to worship by being obedient to God in that moment and being baptized. So this is the essence of submission. This is the essence of what it means to be a follower of God. Is as we follow him, we submit to him. Yes, he is superior to us, but he doesn't call us as inferiors. He calls us as his sons and daughters. And he asks us, he does not force us, he asks us to submit. And when we willingly do what he's called us to do, we enter into a love relationship that fulfills righteousness. And then we become righteous or in right standing with him. Let's meditate for a moment after we pray and um, take 30 seconds to sit in silence and stillness. Let me pray for us and then we'll begin that. Heavenly Father, you are righteous and holy. I am not. I think about myself too often. I squander my resources, my time, my efforts on myself, on my pride, on my self-seeking. Lord, I once again repent of that. I ask you to cleanse me and help me to walk 
in your righteousness, in your love, in your grace, teaching me to be your child. And now let's look at our scripture, Revelation and 3.20. He says, listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. Open the door. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in all ways. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This has been Meditations from Middle Earth. May God be your ever-present teacher and richly bless you on your journey.